All right, we are in a uh, series on John, and, and I want to tell you, uh, this this series is rocking my world. I'm 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 dealing with stuff and sometimes struggling through stuff as I study this and as I look at, at look at what we're what we're talking about and what Jesus is talking about here. And uh, we just we're looking at the story in John chapter three of Jesus and Nicodemus. You know, he came to him by night, kind of came to him surreptitiously in a sense, and and uh, and started to say, you know, look, we know Jesus. We know that you are um you are a like a prophet. We know you're a call from God. Your teaching from is from God. We see what you're doing. We acknowledge that, you know. And then Jesus just like cuts it off and says, you, you must you must be born again. And he just cuts, cuts to the quick in that. And they have a, a little bit going back and forth in this. And we're continuing this going back and forth with, John and Nicod- uh, with Jesus and Nicodemus. But it, it's, it, part of how this has shook me is it's made me rethink some things about my life. Not, not rethink like think, doing things different, but just to relive some things. And I've talked to you before. I've talked to people here before about how I came to know Jesus Christ. But I, I want to just talk about that for a, a minute or two. Because I can remember when I first heard the gospel, I heard it from one of my brothers. I have two big brothers, and from the middle brother, Steve, who was, he was a fairly normal brother when he went off to college, and he became this whacked out, fanatical, like zombie Christian, or at least that's what I thought. I was just so horrified at what had happened to him um, and, and, and what was happening to him. And uh, he sat me down. It was a few months after he had come back. He'd gone away to college maybe six months or so, and he told me what happened to him. He said, I just want to share with you what happened to me. What has happened? And I'm just like, they probably took all your blood, and then they put in this, and I just think you, it's horrible. And so he explained to me how he came to Christ. And uh, I did not, I didn't totally understand it. I mean, he explained it well. You know, I was a teenager. He explained it well. And, and I understood what he was saying, but I think there was this spiritual dullness, um, a dullness that made me not care about what he was saying. And then over a process of years, God, um, I don't know, it's a kind of an old-fashioned word, but I don't know, God wooed me. He loved me. He chased me. He called me. He broke me. Sometimes he was gentle. Sometimes he was rough, but he never quit. Even though I wanted him to quit, I asked him to quit. Because I had this sense that I wanted to be totally in charge of my life, and I did not care about God, and I lived that way. I lived that way. You know, uh, our street, this, this area of Port Warwick is named after authors and artists, and our street is Flannery O'Connor Street, named after famous American writer Flannery O'Connor. And uh, she wrote some incredibly interesting stories. This is kind of a Southern Gothic style um, one of her books is called, uh, it's a series of short stories called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And one of the short stories is called A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's what the whole book is named after. And it is, it, that story will rock you. It's, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's just kind of in your face. It's difficult to deal with. And there's a, a man in it, an escaped convict who is especially uh, just uh, mean in a just a brutal sort of way. He's called the misfit. And he finally says in there, he says, there, if there's a God, it changes everything, but there is no God. And he says, so that changes everything. 
Because the only thing to do if there is no God is just to find pleasure in anything you can. Find, and then he says, to find pleasure. To find pleasure in meanness just for the pure pleasure of it. And you know, I understand that. I mean, I look back at my life before I knew Jesus and even after sometimes. I did sometimes, you know, mean things because it just, in a weird way, felt good. And I began to see over time that God revealed to me my need of salvation. And I began the journey that I'm on even to this day of wanting to follow Jesus. Paul says, Paul says it this way, I want to know him and to make him known. That's what Paul says. Now, I know a couple times when I've talked about my life, man, I'm just, this is, I, this is like therapy for me. I really appreciate you guys. I should be laying down again, right? I should be doing that again. I know my wife has told me a couple times, Bob, you make it sound like you're the most horrible person, that you're so terrible, you know? And, and I don't think I was, you know, different from anyone else. I just, I just realized the kind of person that I could become. And seeing the difference that Jesus has made in my life. And, and, you know, I think I'm not alone in this. You know, you can sit there, like, you can think, wow, you sound terrible. But, you know, even yourself, think about it. Maybe in the past month or two months, has there been a time with someone that you actually like or love or care about, and you have said something to them that you kind of knew right off the bat, this is going to hurt a little bit, and you said it. You, 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 maybe just a small slight or something like that where you hurt someone. You, you, that is what we're talking about here. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's telling people they have to change, when he's telling Nicodemus you have to change. Because what happens? You know, what happens? You say something that's just a little thing, but you knew it hurt that person. And then you sit there or you walk away or you walk around and you know you did and you don't run back and say, forgive me, forgive me. You say, let them deal with that for a little bit. Then I'll confess. We can do that, even as followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's not horrible, perverted things, but oftentimes it can be things, just little hurts and little slights that we know skewer somebody. And we get a little bit of pleasure out of it. You know, Flannery O'Connor, she wrote stories that are hard to read. Critics loved her writing, She's an incredible writer, they would say. But oftentimes they would say, this is horrifying to read. And she would say, I just write stories that are realistic. She would write stories that would treat sin realistically and grace realistically. In fact, at one point she said, it amuses me what people think are horror movies or horror stories. They're afraid of made-up, fantastical things that aren't true. And then she said, people scare too easy. They miss the real horror, the horror of sin, the desperate need of mankind for the new birth. You think about that. What is she saying? We are afraid of the wrong things. We're afraid of the wrong things. We're impressed by the wrong things. We've gotten it all mixed up. 
People today, they say things that sound so reasonable, right? They say, oh, all paths lead to God. We have this spark of goodness in us. Just fan that flame. Trust your instincts and things will turn out okay. Don't get carried away. Don't be a fanatic. And it all sounds so smart, so even keeled. Makes you feel so above average. But Jesus says, no. All that is, all that smart, even-keeled, reasonable-sounding stuff, all that is is you trying to be in charge of your life. You thinking that you should be in control. You being your own savior. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so Jesus, in the midst of our musings, in the midst of our talking, in the midst of our lives, just like he did with Nicodemus, he says, you have to be born again. That's the only remedy. You can read self-help books. You can make changes. You can feel better about yourself, but it doesn't change you at your heart, at the inside. You are still you. You can be a religious person, but religious people make it all about themselves, about what they've done. This is what Nicodemus has done his whole life. The new birth makes it all about Jesus. I mean, we see this already. We've seen this already with John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, look, there's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the whole world. I must decrease. He must increase. Look at him. Look at him. So in this chapter, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 at first. And again, I want to say, we're going to be uh, dealing with culture and context, the history that is involved in this passage, because it's very important for us as we understand the passage. So in verses 9 and 10, Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus about the, the spirit and wind, the water and blood. He's been describing the new birth using these kind of uh, um, ideas that you can hold on to. Somebody talks about the wind. You know what the wind is. Somebody talks about water. You know what water is. Somebody talks about birth. You know what birth is. So Jesus is trying to make this very relatable. And Nicodemus says in verse 9, How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Now Jesus is, again, this pushback where he's actually kind of reprimanding Nicodemus. He says, you're the, you're the teacher of Israel? So we, we understand there's these Pharisees. We talked about this last week. I don't want to go over all of it again. Never more than 6,000. They're, the, they're the best of the best. They're the highest of the high. They, they're the religious of the religious. And he seems to be one of the very top leaders of the whole thing because literally in the Greek it says, you are the teacher of Israel? You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know this stuff? Which, can you imagine? Can you imagine? If you, if you uh, think about this, if you were in a, in a class, say a class on, uh, you know, mathematics, and you're dealing with, you know, all these high-level, you know, not, not addition and subtraction, high-level stuff, and your professor is a brilliant man who's wrote a lot of books, and you start talking about something, and your professor looks at you, and you say, wait, you're the professor of mathematics here, and you don't get this? Imagine how that would feel to have someone say that to you, if you're the expert. So Nicodemus' question here, it seems to be he's admitting that he's struggling. He seems to be saying here, when he says, how can this be, especially when you break it down a little bit, he seemed to be saying, how does this work? What does this mean to me? How do I experience this? I want, an, I want something concrete to, to get a hold of here. And we can tell by the way Jesus answers that, that he's looking for something practical, 
Now, again, Nicodemus is a very religious person. If you were to ask him, are you a follower of Yahweh, right? He would be very indignant. He would be indignant. He would be annoyed by the question, of course I am. Can't you tell by the way I dress? The very way I dress shows it. The clothes I'm wearing, all the little things, the shawl and, and, and all the little knots and cords and everything that means so much. I'm wearing everything that no normal person can afford to wear to show. Of course, I'm religious. Can't you see by the way I dress? Can't you see by the way I behave? Can't you see by the way I give money? Can't you see by the way I eat? I just eat kosher. I'm every little thing. Can't you see how moral I am? Can't you see what a good, righteous person I am? Can't you see by all the stuff I do? So hard, so flipping hard. I don't know if Nicodemus would say flipping hard, but I'm taking a little bit of there. But he, what is he doing? This is the essence of religion. If, if you went to a person, off many people maybe even uh, in the United States, and you said, are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. What do you mean by that? You haven't heard me curse. Proof, right? What does that mean? What does that mean? Nicodemus is saying, can't you see by everything I do, that's the essence of religion. Nicodemus is saying, look, all my life, this is my life. My parents told me this. Everyone told me this. I can be a righteous. I can be the top of the heap. I believe that I'm better than everyone else. And what's happening here? What's happening? Jesus, and I mentioned it, but it, it, he is blowing Nicodemus' mind because this whole talk about the new birth has shaken him to the core because what is it doing? It's shaking everything he just said. Can't you see? Can't you see? Can't you see? Everything I do, can't you see that? And this shakes it. This rocks it. I've been told all my life this rocks it. Because that the new birth is something he can't do. And that's why verse 9 is him saying, how does this work? How practically speaking does this work? He's desperately seeking clarification. Because you can't tell someone, you know, you can't tell someone you are obviously a teacher from God, and then they start teaching and say, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You can't do that. Because you just admitted that what he's teaching is from God. And so uh, Nicodemus is desperately struggling here. So he's saying, how does this work? And Jesus reprimands him a little bit. And we talked about this some last week. We'll touch on it a little more. But he says, you should know better because I have given you plenty of warning. I have told you about this over and over and over. Why haven't you listened why haven't you listened to the prophets? Why haven't you listened to the law? Why haven't you listened to what we did recently? Why haven't you, Nicodemus, Hosea, I'm shot full through, right through the whole book of Hosea. You missed me? So we have Jesus' surprise because he doesn't, he's very surprised at uh, Nicodemus' answer. Now, now we have Jesus' credentials. In other words, Jesus is going to say, okay, you want to know practically speaking? First of all, let me tell you why I have the authority to tell you this. All right? So here we go. Verse 11. Very truly. This is that verily, verily. This is that double emphasis. 
When you say a word twice to tell someone, this is real important. This is what you do for parents with your children when you think they haven't really listened. So you stop them. Maybe you get them. You look in your face. You say, look, are you listening to me? Because I'm telling you this. And they say, yeah, yeah, I heard, I heard. I'm like, no, you didn't, you little liar. You know, and you tell them again. Why? Because this is really important. Verily, verily, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. All right, some interesting stuff going on here that we have to catch. First of all, we have this constant interplay between singular and plural. All right, Jesus said to um, Nicodemus, he said, you, singular, you must be born again. You must be born again. I'm telling you, singular, uh, you must be born again. Now suddenly Jesus flips to plural. Look at this. He says in verse 11, we speak of what? We know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you, plural, that's why they just added people. You people do not accept our testimony. Everything's gone plural now. And there's a couple ideas about what Jesus, why is Jesus going plural? Some people think that maybe it's Jesus speaking for him and his disciples, um, I don't know. It's, it's very early in his ministry. I'm not sure. I don't think that holds a lot of water. Uh, it's possibly the we that's linking Jesus to the prophets of the Old Testament because Nicodemus has just basically affirmed that he is some kind of a prophet. He said, you're from God and your teaching is from God, right? And so the prophets often were not accepted. They were ignored. And, and it may be plausible because Nic he's chiding Nicodemus about not knowing about the Old Testament. So that kind of fits. Or the other possibility is that he's speaking for the Father and the Spirit. He's speaking for the Trinity. Um, this, this, I think, is a real possibility because he's talked previously about the Father. He just now talked about the Spirit. And, and that also links with the prophet, but it, emphasized, it emphasizes that the messages that came from the prophets were about Jesus, about God. And Jesus is talking with the moral authority of God. And so I think there's a very good, I personally lean this way. I think, is, I think what Jesus is trying to say now is he's speaking for the Godhead. Because what is he doing? He's emphasizing his credentials. I am not just from God the Father. I, I am his son. I am God, and I work with the Spirit. So he's emphasizing that. And notice the charge here. Jesus is saying, we are speaking the truth. It, we're speaking about ultimate reality, and you, all of you, you're not accepting our testimony. Now, if Nicodemus's mind was blown earlier and he finally picked up all the pieces and got it in his head, it just got blown again because Jesus is making an audacious claim here concerning his authority. And he's telling him, you're in direct conflict with God. Think about that charge. You, the Pharisees, you, the separate ones, you, the righteous ones, you're against me. 
and his mind is just getting, he's, I think he's having an existential crisis here. I mean, you can imagine, you can imagine what's going through Nicodemus's mind. I mean, this is a little bit of us imagining things, but this is typical of human beings in a lot of ways. In, in one sense, he may be feeling guilty. He says, is this true? Is this man, is this true? Because if it's true, then I'm guilty as hell. I'm guilty. Everything I did doesn't help. Maybe anger? He can't be right. I'm so righteous. I've worked so hard at this. My whole life has been this, and he just cut me off at the knees. It could be fear. If he's right, I'm against God. I've led others astray. I deserve ultimate punishment. It could be confusion. You know, you think about everything they've talked. What in the world does all this mean? Birth, wind, fire? It's like a music group, right? The, the less famous one, probably. Spirit, water, blood. This is a total existential crisis for him. I mean, I was trying to think, you know, I was trying to think, oh, what would it be like to have your world shook like Nicodemus's world is being shook right here? And, and, and I, I, th- I think of an illustration. I don't think it's really very good, but it's the best I can come up with. And it may hit some people here. I, forgive me. I don't want to offend anyone or cause anybody any problems. But just imagine. Imagine that you grew up your whole life like most of you did. You grew up your, your life with, with your family. And then imagine at 21, at 21, Maybe one of your parents says, by the way, you're adopted. And we didn't want that to bother you. We didn't want that. And so we didn't get you till you were three or four, but we Photoshopped and did some stuff. So all your baby pictures, no. Your world would be so rocked. And think, even the things, even the things that it can, you, you would go from confusion to anger, you lied to me? You didn't tell me? Because you were trying to be loving? That's loving to you to lie? You know, you would just go through all kinds of emotions, and it would be so hard. And, and, and it would be hard, like I, even for many people who have struggled with, with difficulties in families, even, even abuse. You have this incredible thing where you're angry at someone, and yet you love them. And you can't justify both emotions at once because you're terrible, but I love you. And how, why do I love you? And what kind of mess am I that I would? And you're working through all that stuff. Just, to, just imagine. Now, with Nicodemus, this is off the scale in something like that. It's off the scale. It's that sense of being sick because everything you ever knew or trusted got turned upside down. Jesus addresses this in verse 12. Basically, he says, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? He's like, dude, I know this is rocking your world. I can't give you too much. You'll just turn into a quivering blob if I, you know, I'm, I, I can't blow your mind too much more. I could tell you more. You're not ready yet. And so he's establishing that he has some credentials. He's telling him, I'm God. And we, the Godhead, have been trying to get through to you, and you're not listening. You thought you were the greatest listener in the world, and you're not. You're not listening at all. 
Remember in the movie Sixth Sense where the kid sees, says, I see dead people. I feel like Jesus looks in Nicodemus's face and says, I'm God. I'm from heaven. And Nicodemus is like, don't, you know, he just, what does he do with that? What does he do that? You want to know the things of God? I live with him. He's my father. And so then, well, even thinking back, John 1, the word came and he dwelt with us. He tabernacled. This is what he's telling Nicodemus. And then he caps it off in verse 13. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. This is me. This is where I'm from. My home is heaven. And then he says, the son of man. He's the one. Jesus says, I am the son of man. Now, we read, I am the son of man. We read Jesus saying that. And it's like, okay. But this is an incredible statement that Jesus is making here. Because the, word, the phrase son of man is a, is a super loaded phrase. And, and this is where, you know, we see Scripture interconnects at so many levels all throughout Scripture. But because Jesus referring himself, referring to himself as the son of man, has a huge background. I mean, just the word son alone carries a lot of weight with it. In, in the Jewish tradition and, and in the ancient Near East, sons carried on the legacies of their father. They inherited the estate. They took over the business. They represented their father's interests. And when they came of age, and that varied in different cultures, but when they came of age, then they were considered equal with their father. In a, in a Jewish village, if, if, if there's a father and a son who are, who are both, have, or, you know, obviously both have come of age, and there's some sort of discussion or some sort of problem, and say, so they gather everybody together, and they say, we need to talk this out and figure out what our village is going to do. The son's words carry equal weight to the father's words because they're both of age. And so saying you're the son of someone, and if you're of age, then, then you're equal with them. And so Jesus is saying, He's saying, I'm the son. He's been saying he's the son of God. Now he says, I'm the son of man. So he's embracing his humanity, but he's also embracing this idea that he is humanity's representative. And, and another thing that Nicodemus would know is from Daniel chapter 7. And it's not going to be on the screens. I'm going to read it to you. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one, the son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, which is the Father, and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, the Son of Man. He received worship. Only God can do that. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel announces there is one who is coming who is the son of man. Though a son of man is going to get authority, glory, and sovereign power. He's going to be worshipped. He is going to, people from all over the whole world will worship him. And his authority will include the whole world, not just Israel. So Daniel predicts that there is this son of man coming. Jesus says, here, present, accounted for, it's me. And this is huge. This is an incredible thing. So he gets authority. He gets glory. He gets power. 
In Matthew 26, Jesus says, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming down in clouds of heaven. This is glory. In Mark 2, he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Authority. I have the authority to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I, get up. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He healed him. He has the power. And so Jesus, over and over, and there's, I could, there's tons of scriptures that talk about this. There's many more. Jesus, over and over, saying, I'm the Son of Man, and he, he always says it in context of something that emphasizes his authority, his power, or his sovereign glory. And he says, he says to Nicodemus, that's me. I'm the Son of Man. This is so huge, a phrase, the Son of Man, that we go, oh, okay, that's cool. And Nicodemus is going, that can't be. That goes against everything I've ever believed. I never, I never understood that. So what does he do? He establishes his credentials Jesus' surprise, because Nicodemus is just having struggling with it. So Nicodemus just asks him, tell me plainly, give me practically, how does this work? Jesus gives him his credentials. Just so you know what I'm about to say, I have the authority, I have the power to say and make it so. And then Jesus gives him an illustration that's a, a form of an invitation. 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He's saying, okay, you want to know how it works? It's just like, right? So there's an equivalency here. This was an illustration of me, the snake in the wilderness. That's an illustration of me. And if you believe you will receive eternal life. So Jesus gives him an invitation, a very practical, understandable invitation. Why? Because he knows this story inside and out. We don't always know it so well. So it's back in Numbers 21. Uh, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to read it to you. Just a part of it, and we'll talk about it just for a moment. They traveled from Mount Hor along the, right, along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. So they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. And that word detest is a very strong word. We hate from the bottom of our souls what you're giving us to eat. We've tried banana bread. You know, we've tried manna burgers We've tried manicotti. We've tried it every way, and we're sick of it. We hate it. So the children of Israel, they're grumbling, they're complaining. But what are they really saying here? First of all, it tells us they were impatient along the way. We're going too slow. Your plan, God, is not a good plan. We have a better plan. We want what we want right now, and our wants and our desires are more important to us than following God. Because what are they saying? They're saying, your plan's wrong. Your plan's wrong. We got the plan. Now, before we can sit down and gather and be too condemning of them, let's think about how we do that. 
Sometimes our comfort, our toys, our relationships, our money, we say, God, I don't want what you're telling me. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to use my money that way. I want to use my money this way. There's this toy I want. Whatever a toy is for each one of us. And it's more important to me than, and I hate, but this is, than say, giving to CareNet or giving, this is more important to me. I don't want your way. I want my way. God, I know what you say about this relationship, but this relationship means too much to me to sacrifice for you. God, I know what you say about, you know, you can just, we can go on and on. We, we do that. We do just what they did. So first, first they were impatient. Secondly, they were, they were thankless. The food that God was miraculously providing for them every day, they got tired of. You know, it's just true, isn't it? If you give, I mean, even in our lives, if we give something too much, I remember talking not too long ago to a person I knew that had struggled with COVID and was still struggling, and and they said, you take it for granted that every breath is easy until they're not easy. And when you struggle to breathe, you remember what a wonderful thing breathing is. Isn't that amazing? You know, it's, it's even like with kids. If you give little kids too much, what happens? They expect it and they need more, right? I had kids who on a normal day, giving them a PB&J and some chips and a juice box and off to school, they were happy as clams, right? But on Christmas morning, expectations have changed, right? Christmas morning, I remember one of my kids going, pants? Why? Because we take for granted things and we expect things and they took for granted what they were getting and they expected it. This is the desert and water is scarce, but they never went thirsty. God always provided them water, but they're like, there's not enough water around here. Boy, when we were back in Egypt, the Nile ran by us, the greatest river in the world. We never lacked water. They haven't lacked water in the desert, but they just had to go further to get it. So what are they saying? We don't want your plan. We don't want your provision of our needs. Needs are not enough. We, we have wants. And so the threat here is, Unless you change, we quit. But as things are, we reject you. We can handle this. We're going to go back to Egypt. We can handle this. And so what happened? It's not, it's that it shows something. There's something in their heart that's gone wrong. And so in the story, snakes come. Now, they're in the desert. Poisonous snakes are in the desert. And so... In some ways, snakes come. God causes this. God allowed whatever it works. Snakes come, and, and people start getting bit, and they start. some of them get very sick, and some of them die. And what's going on here? God is teaching them something as a nation. And what happens? They repent, and then they, they, God tells Moses, make a bronze snake on a pole, 
And anyway, just tell them, if you look, you'll live. You look at the snake, you'll live. This is that. To me, too, this is one of those, the interconnectedness of Scripture. Over and over and over in Scripture, the importance of looking is always emphasized. And so, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just as, same problem we have today. They wanted God to do what they wanted. They wanted God to do their plan, their schedule, and they weren't thankful for what he did do, what he did supply. They didn't realize their need for salvation. They thought they were fine. They thought they could handle it. And they needed something lifted up. The story in Numbers shows that the poison in their hearts was worse than any poison the snakes had. And God had to show them with snake venom that they needed to deal with the poison in their souls. And they repented of their sin. We use that word sin. What is sin? Everything that pushes us against to put ourselves first. Everything that pushes us to put our agenda first, to put our desires first, to put our comfort first. That's what it is. Me first. And when we do that, it creates a thirst in us for more and more. We need the cure that God offers. And Jesus is saying, I will be the bronze snake. I will be the cure. I will be lifted up on the cross. Jesus is saying, look at me. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake so that the Son of Man must be lifted up. What what happened with the snake? Everyone had to look. Son of Man's going to be lifted up. Look at me. Look at me. John the Baptist said, look. Because the Bible emphasizes looking and seeing for what you're understanding, what you're seeing. John the Baptist said, look. It's the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the sacrifice. Look at him. Paul, in Philippians, he talked to, he uses a really interesting compound word that has this idea of, of almost like tunnel vision. You see everything around, but, but everything is like fuzzy and not quite in focus, not quite that important until you hone it down to one thing. And he's saying, it's Jesus. That's what I look at. I see Jesus. In Hebrews, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith our champion. It says looking at him. To look to him, you have to know you are dying. You have to understand that you're a sinner. People looking at the snake, they knew that was their only hope of a cure. They're not saying, wow, I got a fever, so help me deal with it, God. They're saying, no, this is killing me, God. I need it. They're saying, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead woman unless I get help. And that's what it was all about. Jesus said Just like that, I'm the bronze serpent. Look at me and live. Because with Jesus, it's the same thing. We need help with the total life problem. All we have to do is look at him. He took the curse. You know, it's interesting. It takes no ability to look. It doesn't take incredible intellect to look. It doesn't take great strength. It doesn't cost money to look. It levels the playing field for all of us. This is the beauty of the gospel. We're all the same. Nicodemus, the most righteous man that they would know, needed to look to Jesus. And the wickedest person they knew, Matthew the tax collector, just needed to look at Jesus also. That's the Savior. That's what he's done. Free for all who look, for all who believe. We're going to talk in another, go into detail about what the word believe means in another sermon shortly. But today I want to look at another phrase that we often talk, you know, we talk about or we toss around, 
he says in verse 15 that everyone who believes may have eternal life. What is eternal life? What does that mean in Scripture? What is the meaning that's packed into that? <clears throat> Basically, it's one word. We've, we talked about this before in the sense that it's, it's, it's a quality and quantity of life. It's not, it's, not, it's not just life in the future like heaven someday. It's, it's the life we live right now, right here and right now. It's, it's in, re- in reality, it's the life of Jesus in us. That's the idea. Bit by bit, we become more like Jesus. So when we talk about eternal life, um, we're dealing with something that means Jesus' life in us. In fact, Jesus, he, he, he kind of helped us with it. He says, the thief comes to st- only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, have it to the full is a difficult thing to translate. It's, it's one of those things. Sometimes, you know, I talk about the Greek or I talk about the Hebrew, and it's not because I think the translators, oh, those dumb translators. No, they're brilliant men, but they face sometimes words that are very hard, very hard to translate in a brief amount of time, right? Because here's this thing, this word, to have it to the full, to, to the full uh, or abundant in some, it refers to a greater degree of intensity. It means not ordinary. It means unusual. Jesus says, I came to give you a life that has a greater degree of intensity. See, when we see, say abundantly, we think it's like yippee stuff, more and more. Happy day, right? Happy, happy, joy, joy. And, and, and he's saying, no, that's not it. It's intensity, which can work both ways. Joy and sorrow. He's saying, I'm going to give you a life that has more intensity. It's not an ordinary life. It is an unusual life. And our problem is we settle for the ordinary. We settle for usual We settle for things like we talk about this, the American dream, right? The American dream. Grow up, go to school, get a good job, find someone you love, get married, have, what is it now, 1.75 kids, buy a house and a two-car garage, nice cars, nice yard, 401K, nice. So then you retire, you take it easy. This is the American dream that anybody can do that. Um, one of, in the last maybe 30 or 40 years, one of the greatest theologians that's come along is a guy named um, Admiral Akbar. And it's because he said, It's a trap. <laughs> the American dream is a trap. It's not wrong. It's not, you know, I, I, I want to tell you this. It's not wrong, but it's a trap to try to get you to live a life that's ordinary and bland and is concerned with the things that God says are not that important. I'm not against, obviously, I'm married. I'm not against getting married. I'm not against getting a job. I'm not against buying a house. I'm not against 1.75. I am against 1.75 kids. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm not against 1. I'm not against the 401k. I'm not against those things. But God says that house is not that important. And God says that garage is not that important. The cars in it are not that important. And the 401k is not that important compared to the worth of one human soul. Compared to the worth of your neighbor's soul. Compared to the worth of your classmate's soul. Compared to the worth of your coworker's 
soul. It's not that important. It's a trap to get you worried about your education and your degree and your job and this whatever relationship and this house, this material thing that now I am saddled with for 30 years. And it's to get you worried about those things, to take your eyes off Jesus and to take your eyes off your neighbor, your classmate, your coworker, those people who are worth infinitely more. And I know that you could say, oh boy, you know, Bob's busting our chops. No, I'm busting my chops. I'm in this also. I have a neighbor who from the day we moved in, for some reason, didn't like us, didn't like our family. It's just the weirdest thing. And I tried to develop a relationship and cultivate a relationship. And I mean, it was closed doors and it was being ignored. And so after a while, I said, you know, I'm going to be biblical, you know, brush the dust off my feet, you know, plague on you. And I'm studying this and God is telling me, Bob, I love your neighbor but you don't. You're so concerned with other things. And I can neglect this eternal life that I'm supposed to be living so that I'm comfortable. Because you know what? When somebody hassles you, it's just more comfortable to ignore them. It's just more comfortable. I like being comfortable. And so I'm not busting your chops because, well, maybe, maybe I am, but mine are getting busted and I believe in sharing. So that's what, but I don't want this. And this is, to me, this is the really key closing, bringing this all together. I don't want you to feel terrible about you. I don't want you to say, ah, man, I got to do better. All right. New leaf. It's kind of close to the new year. I'm going to be, you know, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster because all that is, is guilt. All that is, is is motivation through guilt. This is what I want you to do, because this is what God's doing to me. I need to look at Jesus more, because if I look at Jesus more, I will care more for my neighbor. If I look at Jesus more, I'll care more for my classmate. I'll care more for my, for my coworkers. I'll care more for the people around me. I'll care more for my family. If I get more of Jesus, it will impact how I deal with all those other people. And that's why with Nicodemus, he says, you're doing a lot of good stuff, dude, but none of it works. You need to be born again. You need me first. Then let the stuff follow. So not turning over a new leaf. It's the idea of seeking him. It's the idea of saying, Lord, change my heart. Because, man, I hope he's not listening. I don't like my neighbor. My heart needs to be changed. There are people you don't like. Your heart needs to be changed. And so I'm praying, Lord, change my heart. I'm praying, God, help me to see people the way you see people. And the only way I'm going to see people the way he sees people is if I focus on him. Because he's the one that can give me that vision to look and see things for the way they are. And so this eternal life we're talking about, it's all wrapped up in this. It changes every relationship of our life. 
Every bit of it. It changed our relationship with God. He's not stern and angry. He's a loving father who wants to spend time with us. We just sang about that. It changes our relationship. It gives us peace with God. It gives us peace with fellow human beings. That's something I need to work on. Because if God has forgiven us, we become more forgiving people. We see people the way God does, created in his image and having unimaginable worth. It gives peace in life. Our life is not just a jumble of circumstances and things that just happen by chance. There's a loving God. He's turning evil into good, even in the most difficult of times. He is using the bad things, the horrible things that happen in our lives. It brings us peace with ourselves. Sometimes we see how bad we are, and we could easily start to hate ourselves. God knows all our worst impulses, and yet he still loves us, and he wants to work through us. And finally, it gives us a peace for the future. The most wonderful things on earth are only a shadow of what's to come because we have a hope that's eternal. We have a peace, and we have a purpose. This is what he's called us. This is what Jesus is laying at Nicodemus' feet, and he's saying, man, you, do you want this? you got to want this, man. This is the best ever. This is the life you were made for. You weren't made for all that crap you were doing. You're made for this. Look at me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is powerful. You tell us that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce between the spirit and the soul. It cuts to the heart. And Lord, our hearts sometimes need to be cut to. And help us not to uh, wallow in guilt or remorse, but to use this as a springboard, knowing that you love us to go out and be loving people, people who want to change lives to those all around us. And as we do that, Lord, we experience the joy that comes only from following you. There is a joy that only you can give. God, help us. We want it. And help us to have eyes to see people the way you see them, Help us to have a heart that loves the way you love them. And then, God, give us opportunities to show it. And we will always be careful to give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for coming, for being here, for being a part of this, for joining us online, for being a part of what God is doing on the peninsula and even throughout this world. We appreciate it. God bless you, and you are dismissed.